Ralph Moody, The Home Ranch, 1956, University of Nebraska Press. From chapter 19, No Prophet of Fightin'. Father, thank you that uh, I get to read and that we get to enjoy uh, this moment together. I do pray that you continue to instruct us. And uh, each time we hear uh, more and more of the story, that we would enjoy the relationships that are woven together and the story that's told and the way you grow up, uh, people even in their youth. In Jesus' name, amen. When I went to the chuck house the next morning, everybody seemed as excited as they had been the Sunday we picked our horse strings. Sid kept calling Jenny, Jenny Wren, and trying to make jokes she laughed at, she would laugh at, but she wouldn't. And Hank was wound up, wound up like a new dollar watch. He'd heard that he and Sid were going out as a team and was hardly down at the table before he shouted, By doggies, bats, you sure ain't made no mistake. With this here little redhead to give me a hand, I'll show you a job of trading like you ain't saw in many a year. No, sir, by doggies. They don't make trading men no more. Why, I recollect when we was a fetching trail herds up from Texas, I and old Tom. Pass the flapjacks, Mr. Bachelet cut in. Then he began talking to Mr. Bent about cutting out 70 head of young stock for our trip down the Arkansas. Hazel came into the chuck house three or four times to bring coffee or help Jenny carry out dishes. Every time she tried to whisper something to me, but she did it so low and fast that I couldn't understand what she was saying. When we were nearly through eating, I noticed her just inside the kitchen doorway, ducking her head and making the motions of throwing a saddle onto a horse. Of course, I knew then that she was telling me to get saddled up so we could show Mr. Bachelet the somersault trick. I nodded to let her know I understood, and within two minutes, I heard dishes clicking and clattering in the kitchen faster than Hank's false teeth did when we were lost in the mountains. <laughs> With... While the trading teams had been away, I hadn't noticed that Jenny paid the least bit of attention to Ned. But at breakfast that morning, she kept asking him if he'd like more coffee, telling him she liked his Sunday shirt and the things like that. Then, when Sid was telling a joke, she looked out the window and said to Ned, I thought I heard a little red-headed woodpecker, but I must have been mistaken. Everybody but Sid laughed, and he tried to, but his face and neck got as red as his hair. I thought he might blow off, but Mr. Bachelet cut in again. How about it, boys, he asked. Want to pitch in and get some trail herds made up this morning? I'm aiming to ride over to the springs this afternoon. Any that wants to ride can, once can ride along. We'll have to work right through the fourth, and this is the only chance you'll get for a celebration. The men all nodded, and the last thing I saw when I was leaving this chuck house was Hazel in the doorway. She had a plate in one hand and a dish towel in the other was making diving motions with her head. I didn't know just what Mr. Bent might want me to do about making helping to make up the trail herd, so I walked up beside him on the way to the horse corral and asked, which horse should I put my saddle on this morning? He looked down at me, closed one eye, and said in a low voice, if you don't want to get it up alive, you'll put it on Pinto while I'm putting Hazel's on Pinto. Uh, you'll put it on Pinch while I'm putting Hazel's on Pinto. If she don't get to show off that trick stunt to batch four Sunday school time, she'll bust a hamstring. Mr. Bassett and all the men, even the dairy hands, must have known Hazel was going to do the somersault trick before we worked the cattle. When Mr. Bent and I brought the saddles, they were standing around behind the horse corral, and Hank was telling in a loud voice about riding tricks he used to do when he was a boy. We hardly had the saddles on Hazel on when Hazel came running from the house. She was holding the herd book in one hand, sort of waving it around so that it would show from behind. But with the other hand, she was hugging a new 10-gallon hat against her chest. As she ran up to the corral gate, her
her father called Hazel. What are you doing with that new Stetson I bought you for the roundup? Well, she panted. Well, the 4th of July is only two days off, and I'll need, I'll need, in less than a second, I knew what she'd need, and Mr. Bent did too. Before she could go on, he said quietly, Betcha my life. Betcha my life, gal. Now don't go getting all het up or you won't do no too good. The boys is waiting. Until then, I thought, of course, that we'd be going to the little meadow for Hazel to do the trick. So I said, if she's going to do the trick here at the crowds, I won't have any need for pinch. Yes, you will too, Hazel snapped at me. If you don't ride with me and do the hissing, I'll get scared and then I'll tighten up and then I'll make a mess of it. I still thought it would be better if Hazel did the trick alone. If I lit on my feet, and she bobbled it, she might be ashamed. So I said, I'll make a few practice runs with you here in the corral, the kind where we don't leave the saddle. Then if you're loose enough, you can do it alone. Nope, Mr. Bent told me. You go on and take your practice runs, but it's your trick. You learned it to her, and you'll do it together. She'll she'll feel more to home. Then he tossed Hazel up onto her saddle and left the corral. The practice worked fine, and Hazel stayed as loose as a rag doll in the saddle. After Mr. Bent opened the gate and we rolled out, I didn't say a word about the trick, but kept soft talking about anything else, the way I'd have talked to a nervous horse. When we were 50 yards beyond the men, I turned the horses. Then, before Hazel had time to get scared, I snapped, let's go! I kept Pinch well clear of Pinto, and the little crowd of men seemed to rush toward us as we raced. When we were almost on them, I hissed and ducked my head. The next moment, we were standing in a row with Pinto's head between Hazel and me and Pinch's at my right. As I looked along the line, Hazel swept off her new Stetson and bowed. The way I told her to, I did. The way I told her, I did at the Littleton Roundup. The men whistled and shouted for us to do the trick again, but I told Hazel I didn't think we'd better. With the little bit of practice she'd had, there wasn't one chance in fifty of our doing it that well again, and there wasn't one chance in fifty million that any other girl could have done it that once. I never saw another cutting horse work with the sureness and speed Clay worked that Sunday after that Sunday. Long before noon, we had three trading herds cut out and ready to take. The trail Monday morning. Mr. Batchelet bossed the making up of the herds and told me which animal to bring out each time. And when we'd finished, he nodded and said, Good job, little britches. Before I could tell him it was Clay who had done the good job, he wheeled his horse away and called to the men. I aim to ride into the springs in half an hour. Get your glad rags on if you want to come along. We'll eat in town. Then he rode away toward the house with Mr. Bent. I didn't want to go to Colorado Springs, but I did want to talk to Mr. Batchelet before he went. With Clay having to stay on the home ranch, and with me going on a long trip, I'd need Blue Boy in shape to use. From the day I'd picked him, I hadn't ridden him an hour, and he'd fought me every minute. I I hoped that during the past week he'd settle down enough that I could handle him, but I thought I should ask Mr. Batchelet before I tried it. As soon as I'd unsaddled Clay, I went to the bunkhouse, but Mr. Batchelet wasn't there. Tom and Ned were trying to shave in front of a little mirror a foot square, and Hank was hollering for his turn. Sid was nowhere in sight, but Zeb was sitting on the steps, patching a pair of overalls, so I sat down beside him. A new half hour must be up before Mr. Batchelet and Mr. Bent came from the house. They both shaved and kept right on talking while Mr. Batchelet changed his shirt and boots. I got up and stood around, waiting for a hole in their talking. Then I asked, Would it be all right for me to ride Blueberry Boy this afternoon? I'll need to get him. Doesn't risk it, Mr. Batchelet told me. He's too dangerous for you to be messing around with by yourself. Zeb looked up from his patching and said, me and Sid will be hereabouts. We'll lend him a hand if need be. Mr. Batchelet stopped for half a minute and stood looking at the steps. Bad streak in that outlaw, he said, as if he were talking to himself. Can't tell when it'll bust loose. Then he looked at me and asked, Why'd you pick him? Because I... 
because I was going to say had to have him, but knew it would sound silly, so I stopped. Mr. Bachelet must have read what was in my mind. He gave me a quick slap on the shoulder and said, All right, little britches. I ought to know without asking, and I do. Go ahead, but be danged careful. He started on, then turned back and said, Don't saddle him without two men around, and don't get on him without a, without a man mounted and alongside. I stood in the bunkhouse doorway and watched the riders out of sight. Then I went inside to write a letter to Mother, but I couldn't think of much to say, so I just wrote, I am going on a trip to Purgatory with Mr. Bachelet. I have a blue horse in my string that is the most beautiful horse I ever saw. I think he's beginning to like me. I have gained two pounds. Your loving son, Ralph. When I'd finished my letter, I thought I'd better rig a double cinch on my saddle before I tried Blue Bowie. So I went to the harness shop to do it. Sid was there and working over something at the bench. When I went in, he said, Hi, you little britches. Come look what I'd done made for that little old Jenny Wren. Been working on it odd minutes Oh, night herding, pounded out the design on the saddle horn with the boot heel. Batch, he let me ride on into Pueblo to get the buckle off in a harness store. Sid held up a pretty, as pretty a horsehide belt as I'd ever seen. It was seal brown, almost as soft as velvet, and polished till it glowed with a vine pattern hammered into it. The buckle was dull silver with a bright gold horse head set in the middle. I never would have put all that work into anything for a girl who treated me the way Jenny treated Sid, but, of course, I couldn't say so. He was still polishing the um, little belt and talking about Jenny when she and the girls drove into the yard from church. While I was waiting for the dinner bell to ring, I finished rigging my saddle, then went to the bunkhouse to put on a clean shirt. Zeb had finished his patching and was washing the overalls in a bucket of water beside the steps. He didn't say anything as I went in, and he didn't look up when I came out, but said, "'Better fetch me that shirt, son.' Ain't no sense in the both of us getting into the suds. It might happen. You'll need a change whilst you're on the trail. It wasn't until I took the dirty shirt back from Zeb that I noticed my spare pair of overalls all washed and hanging on the fence. When I tried to thank him, he, could o- he only shook his head and went right on washing and crooning yellow ribbon. All the dairy hands had driven into town as soon as the milking was done, so there were only the three of us at the table that Sunday at noon. Zeb didn't look up from his plate till he was finished then cut himself a big chew of tobacco, and went outside. I couldn't saddle, boy, saddle Blue Boy till Sid was with me, but he dawdled over his pie so long that I went out and left him at the table. Zeb was waiting for me when I came out. He rifled a thin squirt of tobacco juice, got up from the steps, and walked along with me toward the horse corral. Been studying about that blue horse, hoss, he said when we were halfway to the corral. Awful full of fight, ain't he? Yes, he is, I said. But he's been letting me feed him some pieces of biscuit this past week. No profit of fighting a man as ain't looking for a fight, Zeb said, then spit again, and we went on. I was pretty sure Zeb was telling me that when I'd tried to ride Blue Boy before I'd let him know I, before I'd let him know I was looking for a fight, and that he'd keep right on fighting me as long as I gave him anything to fight against. We carried our saddles to the horse corral, and I took along a biscuit, but we had to wait fifteen or twenty minutes for Sid. While we were waiting, Zeb stood outside the gate and mumbled yellow ribbon, and I went in and fed pieces of my biscuit to all four of the horses in my string. Blue Boy even stood while I reached back for the hackamore Zeb passed me through the gate, and he didn't try very hard to pull away when I slipped it over his head. Sid was whistling like a meadowlark when he brought his saddle, and as he came up to the gate, he let out two or three coyote yelps. Even after Zeb had whispered, watch out afore you spook the hoss, he kept whistling, and he wasn't much help in saddling Blue Boy. I didn't stop soft-talking to Blue Boy until all three of us were in the saddle and Zeb had opened the gate. 
For the next few minutes, I couldn't have soft talk to save my life. The second he saw the gate open, Blue Boy went up like old faithful geyser. And when his four hoofs hit the ground, he was running. Running with his head and neck stretched out and his hoofs beating the sticks on a snare drum. When Blue Boy went up, I had to double over with the saddle horn in the pit of my stomach. And when he came down, I bounced high. The natural thing to do was to haul hard on the hackamore rope so to hold me tight in the saddle. But I wouldn't let myself do it. Blue Boy streaked along the wagon road across the valley just as he had done when he ran away from me before. Sid raced behind and yelled for me to jerk the hackamore, but I left it loose and tried to keep my heels from kicking Blue Boy in the belly. The other time, he left the road at the end of the straightaway and raced up the hill toward the scrub oaks, trying to rake me off on each one. This time, he followed the winding of the road and hardly slowed his driving pace all the way up the long hill. He raced across the top of the rise and onto a rock-strewn piece of road that corkscrewed through the deep gulch beyond. It seemed crazy to let a horse race down that road without at least holding his head up tight. With it down, a stumble would have somersaulted us, but I decided I'd rather risk my neck and his than to let him think I was fighting him. So I left the hackamore loose and rode it out. Blue Boy went through the gulch and up the rise beyond without a break in his pace. Then I felt his stride lengthen, and the sound of his breathing came back above the clatter of the, his, hoofs, his hoofs. There had been times on some of those hairpin turns when I'd been sure I'd be able to... I'd, Hadn't been sure I'd be able to stay in the saddle, but that feeling was all gone now. I eased up a hand. I eased a hand up along Blue Boy's neck and began soft talking again. For at least three miles, Blue Boy held that racing, killing pace, and I was sure he was going to run himself to death. Then his head began to rise, his ears lifted, and I knew he was watching me from the corner of his eye. I didn't let myself change the tone or timing of my soft talk. I didn't try to drive him or slow him, and I kept one hand rubbing along his neck. Another half mile, Blue Boy had dropped his gallop to a swinging canter. And, I, and wasn't blowing anymore. His breathing whispered through his nostrils with as little effort as his white stocking feet reached forward for the road. I looked back for Sid, but he and his piebald horse were nowhere in sight. I think I could have turned Blue Boy easily then, but I wanted him to be sure I wasn't fighting him, so I let him go on for another mile. I'd never felt small on a horse before, but there was something about Blue Boy that made me feel even smaller than I was. It couldn't have been his size. He wasn't much bigger than Pinch, but I think it was his drive and power. When I turned him back, it was only because I thought Zed and S Zeb and Sid might be worried, and I brought him around in a wide circle, only with the slightest draw of the hackamore rope against his neck. Blue Boy didn't break his canter when I turned him, and I didn't want him to. He'd held the pace steadily for a couple miles when we topped the rise as I saw Sid coming up from the gully below. His horse was making hard work of the hill and was blowing badly. Sid let him walk uh, down to a walk and called up to me, Well, you took off. I reckon you'd be in Kansas for now. Why don't you jerk the hackamore and haul him in? Sure you ain't broke his wind? I didn't want to make Blue Boy nervous by shouting back, so I waited till I'd ridden up down to Sid and told him, I didn't need to haul him in because after the first mile, he wasn't running away. And it looks to me as if Pie is the one that might be wind broken. Sid turned his horse and we jogged side by side with Blue Boy breathing easily and the piebald fighting for each lungful of air. By jiggers, it, it's a wonder I ain't went and broke his wind, Sid spluttered. If that dang maverick wasn't running away with you, why didn't you turn him back before you scared the living bejeebers out of me? What you messing with him for? He won't never be no more use to you than a wooden leg. Ain't it best if we take him up to the mountain pasture and turn him loose? One day that daggone outlaw is going to kill you if, it, if you don't get shut of him. I couldn't be sure Sid was right, wasn't right. But from the way I felt right then, I was willing to take my chances of being killed. I knew without Sid's telling me that Blue Boy would probably never be a good 
would never be good any good for a cow horse, but something made me feel as if I needed him and had to have him. I couldn't say those things to Sid without sounding foolish, so I said, I couldn't turn him back now, Sid, not unless Mr. Batchelet told me I had to. Sid had started all over again about Blue Boys being a worthless outlaw when we heard the pound of a running horse's hoofs. I guessed who it would be and leaned a bit in the saddle. Blue Boy leaped forward as, I, as if I'd spurred him and raced up out of the gully. As we topped the hill, I saw Pinto running toward us. Hazel was clinging to his bare back and whipping him with a line at every stride. I forgot all about making Blue Boy nervous and shouted, What's the matter, Hazel? What's happened? For a moment, I thought she was going to fall. She jerked up straight for an instant, then slumped in a heap on Pinto's back. When, um, when I got to her, she was laughing and crying at the same time, and her words came in gasps. I, I reckoned he'd, he killed you, she sort of burbled. I seen how he was running, crazy mad, with his head down, like a killer stallion. Blue Boy didn't like to be stopped. He sidestepped and bobbled his head, but didn't act mean or try to break away. So I looked, said, look at him now. He doesn't look crazy or mad, does he? Zeb told me how to handle him, and it worked all right. Blue Boy wasn't mad. He was just trying to figure, find out if I was looking for a fight. Then I realized that, that Zeb should have been close behind Sid if he'd come with us, so I asked, where's Zeb? That crazy old coot, Hazel blurted. When I run to get Pinto, he was sitting by the horse corral gate, just sitting and spitting at a rock. <laughs> Zeb never told me uh, I did a good job in handling Blue Boy or that he thought I was a good rider. But after that, he didn't need to, and I loved him for it. I was sorry Hazel got so scared when she didn't need to be, but it made me a little bit happy she would that she worried about me. Maybe that's what made me remember that I wouldn't see her for a couple weeks and why I thought it might be nice to ride out to the secret spring and back. Hazel thought so too, and her mother said it would be all right, so I saddled Lady and Pinto, and we went. It was still fairly early in the afternoon, so we went. So we spent about an hour watching some rabbits play by the basin below the spring, and I made a slingshot out of a latigo string and a, wa- a willow crotch to scare away the weasel if it came again. Then Hazel thought it would be fun to go around to the beaver dam in the valley west of the buildings. She said that if we crept up to it real quietly, we might see a beaver swimming. We left Lady and Pinto nearly a quarter of a mile below the beaver dam and went up the little valley by the cattle path through the willows. We went as quietly as we could, but when we got to the dam, we didn't see any beaver. There was an outcropping of rock on the shady side of the pond, and Jenny and Sid were sitting on it. She was holding the belt he'd made for her, looking down at it and rubbing her fingers over the buckle. She was looking down, too, picking petals off a flower and dropping each one into the water. Jenny was saying something, though her voice was too low to be heard across the pond, but it didn't sound as if she were making fun of Sid the way she usually did. The minute we saw them, Hazel put a finger to her lips and motioned for me to go back the way we'd come. I didn't make a sound until we were halfway back to the horses. Then I said, that's the funniest thing I ever saw. From the way Jenny's been treating Sid, I thought she hated him. <laughs> that's all you know about women, Hazel told me, as if she thought I was just plain stupid. I couldn't help remembering her calling me a dirty squealing pig and making fun of help remembering her calling me a dirty squealing pig and making fun of me when I slipped off Kenny's um, donkey. Then her crying when she thought Blue Boy had hurt me. So I said, I guess I don't know much about women, but they're an awful lot they're an awful lot harder to figure out than horses. Hazel didn't even bother to answer, but sniffed again and walked on down the path through the willows.